welcome back to Jonah chapter 4, and this is uh, 9 through 11, part 1. We're about to end on Jonah pretty soon, amazingly. So let's open up in prayer. Father, we just thank you for bringing us here today. We thank you for your word and the truth of it. We pray that you would help us through the power of the Spirit to apply it to our lives, that we would be a changed people and bring much glory to you. And what we know not teach us, and what we have not give us, and what we are not make us, for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, guys. Um, if we were in class together, we would be singing I Surrender All, but since we're not, we are not going to. And usually I read the words, but I think today we're just going to go forward with the scriptures that I've picked. So this is uh, Luke 9, 23 through 25. And um, these are just kind of relating to uh, the story of Jonah. It makes this passage come alive to me. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to lose his, save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? That's Luke 9, 23 through 25. And then John 12, 26 through 28 says, Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. And now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Don't y'all ever feel like that? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. John 12, 26 through 28. In this last verse we read in John 12, Jesus instructed his disciples on the cost of discipleship, his commitment to the Father's will by disclosing his emotions. Sometimes our hearts can be so troubled, and when Jesus walked this earth, his heart was troubled as well. He was great. Um, he was uh, in great turmoil, which means he was stirred. He was um, agitated because of the prospect set before him of the cross, being made sin for us in his death. God made him, the scripture said, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. In view of his turmoil, this stirred and agitated inner being should we now shrink back and ask for deliverance from our hours? Should we shrink back when the fires get hot and circumstances are not of our choosing? Certainly not. For his incarnation was for the very purpose of bringing him to this hour. Scripture also tells us, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And that was in John 12, 23. It was, <clears throat> excuse me, it was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. John 13, 1. Then after Jesus said this, he looked for, toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. 
John 17, 1. Jesus willingly, willingly expressed his submission to the will of the Father, as should we, even though, even through our most difficult and, um, and harrowing circumstances of, of the cross, Jesus did, and it, nothing would be that bad. Father, glorify your name, he says. That was our Lord's heart's motivation to do God's will in order to bring him glory. Is that our heart's motivation? That should be ours as well. In the midst of all of our tribulations and circumstances that are not of our choosing. Jesus being our perfect role model set forth for us as believers. Whenever we are facing dire and difficult circumstances, this flawless example of standing firm and embracing what God's pleasing and perfect will allows and asking God to be glorified through them. All of this, of course, being both for our good and for his glory, never one surpassing the other. There are no surprises in God's perfect economy. None. He's never taken by surprise. Jesus was ever desirous that the Father's name be glorified through it all, which includes thoughts, words, actions, heart motivations, all of this in spite of his inner, stirred, agitated, conflicting emotions. Can't we relate to this? Oftentimes, God's will can be not of our choosing, to say the least. Yet, as stated, it is always for our good. That is why I so often repeat that we are to get our wills lined up with His. We are to get our wanters fixed. To, as T.W. Hunt would say, to will what He wills brings peace to the heart. Puritan Richard Sibbs writes, God carries His children through this world in a variety of conditions. Sometimes we lack, and other times we abound. This allows our graces to be tested. We will find that God's love is stable, certain, and constant in a variety of conditions. God does not change, and his love is constant. However, our lives might change. We must learn not to quarrel with God's government. Let God do as he pleases, as he brings us to heaven. It is no matter what the way is like, or how rugged it is, or how long as he brings us there. God's grace is able to carry his children above all conditions. A man of grace is not overly dejected with abasement or overly lifted up in abundance, but carries himself in a uniform manner. He is able to go about to abound or lack without yielding to the temptations of those estates. He can abound without pride and lack without impatience. God is his portion. Is he our portion as well? Is he ours? Is he our sufficiency and strength? Those that are not brought up in Christ's school are not able to do this. If they abound, they are proud. And if they are cast down, they murmur and complain and grumble, fret, and are dejected, as if there were no providence to rule the world. This is the excellency of a Christian. He has learned to abound and lack without being trapped by their snares. Again, that was Richard Sibbs. As Paul writes in Philippians 4, 11-13, 
I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. That's Philippians 4, 11 through 13. We are also told by the Apostle John to, uh, to follow our role model. In 1 John 2, 6, he says, Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Must. Okay, now I'm going to read Jonah 4, 9 through 11, just those three verses, um, and then we'll get at it. But, but God said to Jonah, Do you have any right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Hmm, I guess so. In our verses for today, we discover God asking Jonah the same question he posed earlier in verse 4. Do you have a right to be angry? But here in verse 9, God added the words about the vine. The wording actually means, Do you have a right to burn with anger as a fire that has been just, just been ignited to be incensed about the vine? God desired for Jonah to see the great contrast between his sparing Nineveh and his destroying the vine. <laughs> Jonah's seemingly total lack of concern for the spiritual welfare, the eternal state of the Ninevites, and his concern over his own physical comfort and welfare. Selfishness wrecks, reeks, excuse me, in Jonah's unconcern for Nineveh and his concern for himself. Jonah replied that his anger over the withered plant was justified. So much so that he just wanted to die. The prophet was so mad at God and his uncomfortable circumstances that he was ready to give it up, to die, rather than to give up his anger. (laughs) His anger blinded him to the absurdity of his feelings and his statements. Does that ever happen to us? Does our anger ever burn so fiery hot that it just blinds us to, to the right thing? Unfortunately, I have to admit, yes, unrighteous anger feeds the ego and it produces the poison of selfishness in the heart. Paul tells us in Colossians 3, 5 through 10, put to death, I mean, kill this, therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life that you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, 
and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self and have put on your new self with, it, with its practices, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of, this, of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Jonah still had a problem with the will of God. He did not want to do it. I'm reminded of Cain and Abel, the first fruits of Adam and Eve's union. In Genesis 4, 1 through 7, Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept the flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought the fat portions from some of his, the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look so with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you, but you must master it. Genesis 4, 1 through 7. We see here the nature of rebellious man and unfolding in the person of Cain who had an auspicious beginning as the child of hope, the first child born to our original parents. But the narrative lines him up with the curse as he worked the soil quite literally, the ground. Abel, however, seems to be lined up with man's original purpose, to have dominion over life as he kept the flocks. These coincidental descriptions are enhanced with their actions in worship. Abel went out of his way to please God by offering the best of the first fruits, which meant he had faith in God. Obedience demonstrates faith. Obedience demonstrates faith. Hebrews 11:6 states, And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That's in Hebrews 11:6. Whereas Cain was simply discharging a duty to God in his sacrifice, rendering his sacrifice not acceptable or evil, Abel's actions were righteous before the Lord. Remember, God is always looking at the motivation behind the action. It's not so much the action as the motivation behind it. 1 John 3, 12 tells us, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. 1 John 3, 12. These two types of people are still present. Cain's lack of faith shows up in his response to God's rejection of his offering of fruit. Just as the older brother in the story of the prodigal son rejected the father's offer to come in and celebrate because he was angry over the mercy given to his brother. 
And just as Jonah refused to celebrate over the salvation of the Ninevites, Cain refused to listen to God's voice rather than listen to rather than being concerned about remedying the situation and pleasing God. Cain became very angry. Indeed, Cain was so angry he would not be talked out of his sin, even by God. In chapter one of Jonah, Jonah's mind understood God's will. It wasn't that he was ignorant to it, but he refused to obey it, and he took his body in the opposite direction. In chapter 2, Jonah cried out for help, and God rescued him, and he gave his body back to the Lord. In chapter 3, Jonah yielded his will to the Lord and went to Nineveh to preach because he wanted out of that will. But his heart was obviously not yet surrendered to the Lord's will and ways, meaning his heart did not beat with the Lord's. Jonah did the will of God, but not from his heart. And once again, the motivation behind the action is as important to God, to say the least, as the action. Scripture tells us in 1 Chronicles 28, 9, And you, my son Solomon, Acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. And in Proverbs 16:2, it says, All a man's ways seem innocent to him. But motives are weighed by the Lord. And he does. He weighs our motives. Life for Jonah is a series of disconcerting surprises and frustrations. He tries to escape from God and is trapped. He then gives up, accepts the inevitability of perishing, and is saved. He obeys when given a second chance and is frustratingly, embarrassingly successful. He blows up over his success, over his, his frustration is intensified. Judson Mather says, like Cain, Jonah had more lessons to learn, perhaps the most important one of all. In chapter one, he learned the lesson of God's providence and patience, that you cannot run away from God. Amen. In chapter two, he learned the lesson of God's pardon that God forgives those who call upon him, even from the belly of the wells. In chapter 3, he learned the lesson of God's power as he saw a whole city humble itself before the Lord. And now he had to learn the lesson of God's pity, that God has compassion for lost sinners like the Ninevites, and his servants must also have mercy and compassion. The Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 3, 12-15, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. 
We are to be a thankful people, not an angry brood. Indeed, we are to be constantly giving thanks with joy. First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 states, Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. All circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We are also told in Proverbs 29, 11, A fool, as Jonah was acting, gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. And in James 1.20, we find, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For a man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. It never does. It seems incredible that Jonah brought a whole city to faith in the Lord, and yet he did not love the people he was preaching to. Indeed, he was quite angry about the way it all went down. Next, we discover God wanting Jonah to see that he simply had no right to be angry over Nineveh or the vine because Jonah did not give life to nor sustain life for either of them. And I'm reminded of Paul's words in, in the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, where it says, For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? How nincompoop of us. Not one of us can make something ex nihilo out of nothing. Not one of us. We are not God's equal, and we never will be. Neither is he sitting up in heaven waiting for marching orders from us to do our bidding. We are his. We are not our own. We have all been bought with a high price, and we are therefore to honor God with our bodies as well as with our heart, soul, mind, strength, mouth, and hands. <laughs> Jonah was neither sovereign over Nineveh nor the plant which God had provided. He had no control over that plant's growth or of its withering. The vine was quite temporal <laughs> as it sprang up overnight and died overnight and was of relatively little value. Yet we discovered Jonah grieving over it. Indeed, he became burning with anger, wanting to die. A bit extreme, is it not? Was his hot anger causing something good to happen? The prophet was so mad at God and his uncomfortable circumstances that he was ready to die rather than to give up his anger. His boiling rage blinded him to the absurdity of his feelings and his statements. Certainly, Jonah had no part in making that plant grow. Neither had he created the Ninevites. But God had, and God loved them, and God cared for them. Let's close in prayer. Father, we just thank you for Jonah's example. Help us to take heed and not be angry. Oh, and not cause sin to develop in our lives and become bitter. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us. And we ask that you would change us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
You've been listening to a message by Beth from Sharing Bread Ministries. You're welcome to pass this message along to others, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the written permission from Sharing Bread. This content has been provided to you free of charge by the generous supporters of Sharing Bread. For additional information on Sharing Bread, you can look for us online at sharing-bread.com. You can find Bible teachings for adults and kids, links to podcasts and other resources to help you grow in the Lord. Again, that website is sharing-bread.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in touch with Sharing Bread. Sharing Bread, laboring to grow up families in Christ.